0: In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted. "'withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. "'The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. "'I told this to the magicians, "'but none of them could explain it to me. "'Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, "'The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. "'God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. "'The seven good cows are seven years, "'and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. "'It is one and the same dream.' The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land." The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, "'Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God?' Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah priest of On to be his wife and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh king of Egypt and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand on the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son, he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the land was severe everywhere.
1: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as we reflect on your work in the life of Joseph and in the life of the people of Egypt and of Pharaoh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your work in our own lives uh, and your other work in history in Jesus, so that we might be encouraged and strengthened by your faithfulness. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the story of uh, Joseph is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, It's the kind of story that everybody learns at Sunday school. Uh, It's one of the ones that always comes up in the children's storybook Bibles. Uh, And of course, the story of Joseph has been made more famous as well by uh, things like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, Uh, Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's the kind of story that everybody knows and that lots of people are familiar with. Uh, And it's one of the most extraordinary stories in the Bible, I think, as well. Not just because uh, of Pharaoh's strange dreams, uh, and not just because Joseph can interpret the dreams, but also because in this story, in this very chapter, overnight, Joseph goes from a guy who's languishing in prison to a man who is second in charge over one of the great nations of the ancient world. We all love, I think, those rags to riches stories. Uh, A few weeks ago, all over the news, there was a story about some guy in Pakistan. I don't know if you saw it. There was a guy in Pakistan who was selling tea, and overnight, he uh, secured a modelling contract. Uh, It was one of those stories, you know, that always comes up on the right-hand side of the news websites. Uh, But this story was reported on no less than the BBC and the Guardian websites. Right? So this is, this is not just, you know, the Daily Mail or something like that, but, but reputable news uh, sites were reporting this story because people love to hear those stories about someone's life who's t- turned around uh, in a moment. But the story of Joseph is not just about a personal success. Uh, isn't it wonderful that Joseph, you know, kind of... Uh, his life has turned around. Rather, it's a story about what God is doing, not in fixing up Joseph's life, but in fixing up Egypt and in protecting his own people. So, in an out of control world, the history in this chapter builds our confidence, I think, in God's ability to turn weakness to power, hopelessness to freedom, and failure to success. For the salvation of the world. So uh, you might remember a few weeks ago that Joseph had been sold into slavery by his own brothers. He'd ended up in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Egypt, and then he'd been thrown into prison because of the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. Chapter 41 takes up the story at that point, and Joseph is still in prison two years later. And while he is in prison languishing, Pharaoh has those dreams that we read about. Uh, In the first dream, he sees seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile, and then he sees seven skinny gaunt cows coming up out of the Nile as well, and they eat up, they swallow up these fat cows. Uh, It's an odd and disturbing dream. Uh, Pharaoh wakes up and is disturbed by it, uh, but he falls back to sleep and has a very similar dream again. He sees seven ears of corn growing up that are healthy and good, like the seven fat cows, and then there's this uh, other seven uh, uh, ears of corn which grow up, which are thin and scorched, uh, and and they swallow up the good corn. Pharaoh's disturbed by having the same dream twice. What can it mean? What is going on? Of what is an omen? Uh, clearly it's of something bad, isn't it? Because in both cases, the good things are, are swallowed up. And so he calls Pharaoh for his magicians and the wise men of Egypt in the hope that some one of them will know what's going on. But they're all completely stumped. And it's at that point that the cupbearer, who'd been in prison with Jacob, in the chapter before, in chapter 40, he remembers how Joseph had interpreted his dream and the dream of the baker. Uh, there's that great line, I'm reminded today, Pharaoh, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Uh, th- this this cupbearer remembers uh, what Joseph has done. Uh, he remembers that Joseph had interpreted his dream and what Joseph had said would happen is exactly what had happened. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph and after a bit of a spruce up, a a shave, uh, a change of clothes, probably needed to get rid of the the kind of beard that Ben has, uh, you know, after two years in prison, uh, he needed to to spruce himself up a bit Uh, and he finally appears before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says to him, I had a dream and no one here can interpret it but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it and what does Joseph say? He says, I can't do it. What? (laughs) What's this guy on? What's he thinking? He's finally, he's been languishing in prison. Finally, he's caught before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, "I I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, no, actually, I can't. Wow. And yet he goes on to say, doesn't he? But, but God, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Here's Joseph's chance to kind of finally get in good with Pharaoh, to stake his claim, to show his, uh, how competent he is, how worthy he is. Uh, but Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't sell himself. He's called in to interpret Pharaoh's dream, but he does more than that. He points Pharaoh to God. He points Pharaoh to the living God, who is sovereign over the affairs of human beings. Joseph stands in a long line of people in the Bible who are brought before rulers and who testify to them of God. So you might think of Moses and Aaron before another Pharaoh, or you might think of Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, or Esther before King Xerxes, uh, or Paul before Felix, or Festus or Agrippa, or perhaps even before Caesar. And of course, then there's Jesus himself appearing before Pilate. In fact, during his days on earth, Jesus said specifically his disciples, to his disciples in Matthew 10, he says, On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The story of Joseph is a fabulous reminder of how God brings opportunities for the gospel into the most unlikely of places. He even brings gospel opportunities into the very corridors of power. He raises up ordinary people to appear before the most powerful rulers of nations. Sometimes that will be, as Jesus said, as prisoners, as people condemned for following Jesus. You see that again and again in the book of Acts, that the very persecution that is trying to stamp out the church is actually the very persecution which brings the message of the gospel to to the rulers who are trying to stamp it out. It's that persecution which gives people like Peter and Paul a free opportunity to proclaim the gospel, an opportunity they would never have had otherwise. They get to proclaim the gospel not just among the elites of society, Festus, Agrippa, Pilate, whoever, but also among the common people in the public square. They put them on trial and say, defend yourself! And there they stand up and speak to thousands of people about the truth of the gospel. And maybe in our lifetimes too, some of us will be called to defend our faith in Jesus publicly publicly as well. We'll be called to give an account in the courts uh, or in the public square for the hope that we have. And when that happens, as it inevitably will, we shouldn't resent that. But we should receive it as what it actually is, a great gift from God. That so many people through our struggle can hear about the truth of the gospel. And if you're called to testify to Christ in that way in the years ahead, you won't need to worry about what to say or how good a job you'll do or how persuasive you'll be because God will give you words to speak through the power of the Holy Spirit. God gives the opportunity and God gives the words for us to speak. God gives words whose power to give life and to take away life exceeds the power of our ordinary, stumbling, faulty words. But sometimes, too, God will give us other opportunities to testify to Jesus, not in persecution, more in the kind of the Joseph and Esther sense. That is, just he'll raise up opportunities for us uh, in situations where we're not under threat, but an opportunity where we can speak the truth of the gospel. Whether it's to the highest places of government uh, or in the streets or among our family, sometimes God will put us in places that we would never have expected to be in order to testify to him. That's not to say, uh, of course, that we should sit back and just go, well, God's opening the doors, we'll just wait for those doors to open. Uh, Both Jesus and the apostles are always looking for those opportunities, they're always uh, eager for them. And in the same way, I think the story of Joseph is an encouragement, not for us to sit back and to wait, but for us to be eager, for us to pray, for us to keep looking, to keep praying, because God is in the business of putting his people, ordinary people, in significant places to testify to him and to Jesus So that's the first thing, by God's hand, Joseph appears before Pharaoh. But then Joseph not only appears, he demonstrates the power of God by interpreting the dream. That's the harder thing. In verse 25, and again in verse 28, Joseph says to Pharaoh that the two dreams are one and the same. Well, that's uh, kind of obvious, but that in them, God has revealed to Pharaoh, Joseph says, what he is about to do. Uh, God's revealing the future in advance for Pharaoh's benefit. The seven fat cows and the seven good ears of corn are seven good years of plenty, and the seven skinny cows and the seven scorched ears of corn are seven years of famine that will ravage the land. The reason for the two dreams uh, is explained in verse 32, when Joseph says, The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So it's not that God is helpless to stop the famine, Uh, and so in the end he kind of, with his hands tied behind his back, he decides to send a dream to Pharaoh uh, in order to kind of mitigate the effects of this oncoming catastrophe. Joseph says that the famine is something that God has determined to do, and yet he's also determined to let Pharaoh in on it so that they can prepare themselves... That tells us something about the sovereignty of God and about God's control over our world. It's not that God is in a constant battle to try and stop bad things happening and that sometimes he gets a bit behind the eight ball and things get carried away and he can't stop it. Joseph says God determined that this catastrophe would happen. Nothing is outside the power of God. So in Isaiah 45.7, 45.7, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. Or in Lamentations 3, it is not from the mouth of the Most High that both, uh, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. God stands behind both. And that's, I think, hard for us to understand. It's not that God is... The author of evil in the same way that he is the author of good, but God certainly uses evil to accomplish his purposes. And I think the reason that that's hard for us to understand is because often we don't see the great purposes that God is accomplishing through the particular evil that we face or that our friends face or that the people that we love face. Tim Keller points out that if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. That is, if God is so powerful that we can be angry at him for not stopping evil, he must be above our comprehension and have reasons for doing things that we can't understand. But I think there are hints in this chapter as to why God allows this famine. It's not spelled out in great detail, but given that God has also provided the solution to the famine in Joseph and his plan, it seems that what God is trying to do is to teach the people of Egypt and to teach us that he's in control. God's trying to teach them and us that what we need most of all is him. We need God because he's in control of world events. He's in control of events that we are not in control of. The greatest good that God can ever do for us is to reveal himself. The greatest good that God can do for people is to reveal himself to them. And if knowing God and loving God is the greatest good that we can ever experience, then God opening people's eyes to see him is the greatest gift that he can give. And what if we are such stubborn and hard-hearted people? What if we are so naturally closed to God that nothing short of suffering and pain can break us and humble us and drive us to God? Isn't pain sometimes worth it? Isn't the pain of, of an operation worth it in order for the surgeons to fix what's wrong with us? For people to see their need of God and to turn to him is a greater good than avoiding temporary suffering. For people to begin trusting God is a greater good than people continuing to trust in themselves. But God not only provides Pharaoh with a view of the future, he does that, but he also provides him through Joseph with a plan, a plan to save Egypt and a plan to save the world. God is doing good through this. Joseph says in verse 34, here's the plan. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined By the famine. There's an awful lot of wisdom in Joseph's plan. He encourages them to use the bounty from the good years in order to uh, protect them for the years of famine. Uh, It's a sensible plan, isn't it? Because it's so terribly easy to waste, uh, to squander the future by being wasteful in the present. It would have been easy without God's warning and without Joseph's plan for the Egyptians to kind of live it up for seven years. You can imagine those seven years of plenty, can't you? Uh, People who kick their feet up, uh, they'd build uh, better houses, you know, they'd they'd do everything. They'd, They'd do everything that they always dreamed of doing because they'd think to themselves, wow, these are the best years we've ever had. But the problem would have been that the famine would have arrived and they would have been caught unprepared. But Joseph, because of Joseph's plan, because of God's warning, the people of Egypt uh, were prepared for for what came. Uh, And while I don't think this is kind of a major point of the passage, I think there's a lot of wisdom in Joseph's plan that we can apply to other situations, to other areas of life. And one particular, one area in particular, I think, is with regard to making use of our present gospel openness, the present gospel openness in our world, to prepare for times of gospel difficulty ahead. So, for an, a number of years now, I've been asking myself the question what if these times are the times of plenty? What if these are the times of plenty ahead of times of famine? If that's true, what does that mean about what we should be doing now in order to prepare ourselves for the future? What does that say about how we ought to be living now? You see, I think at present in the Christian world we live in times of plenty. I think there's a, there's a spirit of collaboration and camaraderie among Christians around the world that is almost unknown, uh, certainly in the last 100 years, certainly since the time of the evangelical revival in Britain and America. Uh, groups like the, Co- the Gospel Coalition uh, and others are uniting Christians around the globe in the cause of the gospel. It's extraordinary. People from, from different denominations working very closely together, labouring together uh, in evangelism and mission. Uh, Even locally here in Tassie, we have Vision 100, which is working, it's not just Presbyterian and Reformed churches, but Baptist churches, Anglican churches, other churches, people across the state working together in the cause of the gospel. We live in a time, too, uh, where churches are still classed as non profits, which means that we can do more with less money because of the kindness and the generosity of the government. Uh, And we live in a time where we can still run Christian organisations, Christian schools, Christian theological colleges, Christian uh, companies. And yet it's easy, I think, to foresee a period of great gospel famine ahead where preaching the gospel could become more difficult, where open partnership in the gospel could be completely ruled out and where Christian organisations can no longer be openly Christian. And I think as I look at that layout of the world of where we are and where we might be heading, I keep coming back to the same thought, which is I think we need to seize the day. Not by storing up money for the future, uh, to be used when the times are tough. Money won't be the issue. What we need to be doing now while we can still do it freely is heavily investing in raising up people for ministry, training ourselves for ministry and building the church as much as we can in the good times where gospel ministry is allowed in order to prepare for the times of famine in the future. I think we need to make the most of the days of plenty that we're in rather than to waste our freedom on idleness and indolence. Rather than living it up now, spending the future... Uh, our future inheritance, uh, if you like, or spending what we have now to squander the future, uh, rather than living up now, we need to work hard now to tighten our belts now and to maximise our efforts in preparation for the difficult times ahead. Now is the time for us to put down deep roots. Now is the time for us to work especially hard on evangelism and mission. Now is the time to work hard on raising up pastors and gospel workers and missionaries for generations to come. Now is the time to work hard to be a blessing to our region and our country and our world, not just now, but in the years of difficulty ahead. Now, that's just my judgment of where we are and where we're heading, uh, based on trying to look at the world through the lens of the Bible. Unlike Joseph and Pharaoh, there's no dream, I have no dream, uh, (laughs) that that guarantees this, but I think it's pretty sensible. And even if I'm wrong about what the future holds, it still seems like a, a prudent response, I think to our present realities and the future realities, uh, to work hard now to prepare for difficult years ahead. I worry that we're squandering our opportunities now and we will reap the consequences of that in the years to come. Well, the plan for grain storage is only one part of the plan. Uh, There's one other key part of the plan as well. And the other part of that plan is in verse 33. Joseph says... And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. I love it. It's such a great, it's a great line, isn't it? We're all standing there thinking, well, I wonder who this guy could be. Pharaoh, you need to find someone wise and discerning uh, who you can raise up to put in charge of the, uh, of the land. It's the kind of thing that Sir Humphrey would say in uh, Yes, Minister. Uh, In fact, I think Sir Humphrey says that numerous times in Yes Minister. But I'm not sure that actually Joseph is meaning to put himself forward. I think it's just part of his strategic plan. He's thinking about what needs to happen and he says, actually, Pharaoh, what needs to happen is someone needs to be put in charge of this. Uh, And you need to be really careful about who you uh, appoint. It reminds me of a lady that I once heard speak she'd been serving in Christian mission as a nurse for about 40 or 50 years she'd been serving in the Middle East and before she'd gone someone some other missionary I think had come along and said uh, you know kind of raised the profile of the needs that they had in this part of the world and uh, after that she'd sort of begun praying that uh, God would raise up uh, a, a person with the, with the kind of skills that she had as a Christian nurse to go to the Middle East Uh, to serve in mission and it was several years or it was a a while at least before she suddenly realized that she may be the person that she was praying that God would send Uh, and eventually she went and served 40 or 50 years at least in that country Uh, and I think that's what's going on here with Joseph Joseph is just being honest he's saying you need someone wise and discerning to to head up this work Uh, and it just turns out that it's him Pharaoh is not an idiot, and he can see that the way that Joseph has presented himself, he's able to interpret the dream, he's a clever strategist, uh, God is with him. And so uh, Pharaoh says uh, in verse 38, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Uh, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. God's given you the wisdom that's needed for this task. Who else can there be? I love it that, uh, as someone said, Pharaoh's now talking, uh, Joseph' witness is so compelling that Pharaoh's now talking about God as well <laughs> uh, and the way that he's equipping him. Joseph recognises that there's something special, uh, Pharaoh recognises there's something special about Joseph Uh, and that that something special comes from God. And so he appoints him as second in charge over all of Egypt. He puts him in charge of the land. He gives him his signet ring, a symbol of Pharaoh's authority, the ability to execute execute things with Pharaoh's power. He dresses Joseph in fine robes. He puts his chain around his neck. He makes him ride in a chariot. In verse 44, he says uh, to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. That's an extraordinary statement to make. But more extraordinary, I think, than the honor that's given to Joseph is the success of his leadership. During those seven years of plenty, he travels the land, stockpiling the food. There's so much food we're told in verse 49 that they stopped keeping records. All the accountants are thinking they stopped keeping records. How could they do that? So irresponsible. They, there was so much they stopped keeping records uh, because it was beyond measure. Uh, and eventually. Those seven years of plenty came to an end and the famine came, not just in Egypt, but in all the surrounding countries as well. We're told in verse 57, And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Because of his careful stewardship, Joseph is able to provide not just for Egypt, that's great, but for all the surrounding nations as well. It's incredible. Joseph is not just a blessing to a few small people. We saw last week it was a blessing to Potiphar. Now Joseph is a blessing to Egypt and the nations. And what God did through Joseph, he's still doing today. God's still raising up Christians to positions of authority and leadership in order to bless the world. It's remarkable, actually, to look around our own country and to realise how many people in positions of authority are Christians. There are Christian governors. The New South Wales governor is a Christian man, the patron, I think, of the current patron of the Bible Society. There are Christian police commissioners. At least one of the heads of the major banks is a Christian. The former head of the RBA was a Christian man. There are Christian politicians. There are many senior public servants who are Christians. A number of the political commentators who are regularly invited onto the ABC are Christian men. One of the ones for the Middle East uh, for terrorism and one of the ones for financial affairs are solid Christian men who are often wise and thoughtful in the comments that they make. God can raise up people to positions of influence for the good of society. And while you and I might not be raised up to positions Of power and influence, uh, God still puts us in positions where we can be a blessing to others in our workplaces, in our homes, in our community groups, in our schools or our universities. He raises us up to be a blessing by bringing godly wisdom to the issues of the world, but most of all, He raises us up in order to preach the gospel, in order to tell people about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, a long list of Christians in public office while encouraging, is ultimately hopeless. No politician can fix the problems bedded down deep in our world. No police commissioner can fix crime, the crime that lives in our hearts. No military general can end war. No Supreme Court judge can bring absolute and total justice. And we know, you and I know, that God hasn't just raised up police commissioners and and judges and and whoever else. We know that God has raised up his own son, Jesus. He's raised him up on a cross. He He raised him up from a grave. He raised him up to sit on the throne of heaven. He raised him up to bless the world by putting sin to death. He raised him up to give us new life in him. He raised him up to bring justice and peace to the world, now and at the last day. God has raised up Jesus not as the head of a bank or a police force or an army or a government. In one small part of the world, God has raised up Jesus to be king over the whole world. And he already reigns. And he's already bringing peace and gathering people as he gathers people into his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. That's the best news of Genesis 41, the, the news of Jesus. The story of Joseph is amazing, it's incredible, it's powerful. But the story of Jesus is way better because the story of Jesus meets our deepest needs, not just as individuals, but as people in a world torn apart by our rejection of God. Democratic systems around the world are struggling at the moment as governments are being thrown out and protest parties are gaining ascendancy. I think one of the countries in, uh, it's like Finland or Iceland, I think it's Iceland perhaps, uh, they're saying that there's a possibility that the pirate party is going to be uh, voted into government uh, in the elections this weekend. It's extraordinary, isn't it? People can see the problem. Governments aren't fixing the problems. They can see the problem, they just can't see the answer. They can see that governments aren't fixing the world, but they can't see that the answer is not to try yet another government in the long line of governments that have tried in the history of the world. The answer that we all need is to trust Jesus and to look to him. Just as Egypt was saved by listening to God's man Joseph so too we can be saved and our world can be saved and people in our world can be saved by listening and following God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you raise people up. Uh, by your sovereign power to be a blessing to the world, to be a blessing to our broken and troubled world. And Lord, we all know the deep tragedies that engulf our world. Uh, Lord, some of those tragedies are more real to some of us than to others. Uh, We feel them more keenly. Uh, They're in our face uh, every day. But thank you, Lord, that you raise up Christian people to be a blessing in trying and difficult times. Uh, and thank you that those people really are a blessing to the world. But, Lord, we also know that our power uh, in the world is exceedingly limited and that what we really need and what the world really needs is Jesus. Jesus thank you that you've you've opened our eyes to see him lord please open the eyes of others to see him as well please raise us up into positions of influence in people's lives so that we can tell them the good news that jesus reigns that he can fix the world that he can make Uh, Broken people whole, sinful people righteous, condemned people just, dead people alive, hard-hearted people, those who love and worship you, the true and living God. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake.
0: Amen.